Hi there, I'm Dan, and welcome, or welcome back, maybe, to the Shaw Vineyard Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take just a moment to subscribe in iTunes or in your podcast app of choice. That way, you can get every message from our church straight away on whatever device best suits you. You know, it's our hope that the message that you're about to hear in this episode would encourage you to take your best next step in your faith journey. So let's get straight into it. Killed everyone. It's great to great to be here uh, again, sharing with you guys. I, I I just got a message on my phone from somebody that said great message this morning. So I hope that's a bit of an encouragement. I don't want to build false expectation, but let's um let's see it. Oh really? Oh, anyone else's mums? Like it's the target demographic, okay? Yeah, I, I don't I don't want to disappoint everyone. Um, well, it's great to be here. in this in this um I'm. I was just outside, and you can smell the sticky date pud just wafting around, you know, all the bags of brown sugar that go into the sauce. It's um, it's Zoe's special recipe, so I think we're all in for a treat for some, some dessert. So even if this is a train wreck of a message, at least um, the recency effect would have it that we'd remember that tonight was pretty good, you know, because we had great dessert. So that's exciting. Um, I, this is like a smattering of thoughts around a topic that's fairly interesting and, and close to close to my heart. I've titled this sermon "The Unknown Road" uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, one, because we're doing a series called "On the Road" in terms of like a journey or pilgrimage and that kind of stuff. And um, secondly, because like a lot of the journeys are known, and a lot of um, what I'm going to talk about now is the time and space that we find ourselves as people who identify as Christians or people of faith or on the outskirts of faith in our culture and in our world. Um, it's kind of an unknown territory at this point in time. Like, um, so we're about to go on a journey, so to speak. But you kind of want to know where you're going. You kind of want to know what the terrain is. You kind of want to know what the landmarks are, right? So for, for myself, I'm always like, okay, what's the situation? What's the problem going on right now? Because so often we can spend our time and our, our lives solving problems but not getting to the heart of the problem. We're just solving the superficial level problems. I'm all about just naming what's actually going on. Um, so uh, tonight we're going to kind of look at what's going on with... Um, pretty much faith and spirituality in the 21st century in the Western world, and um, where we're at within that and what we do around that. So uh, we'll, see how, we'll see how we go with that. Just as an intro, yeah, so, so just as an intro. And I'll, I'll quote an NZ Herald article, far more reputable than stuff.co.nz. But um, this is from uh, the Wilberforce Foundation. Wilberforce Foundation? Yes. Oh, McCrindle Report? No. It's, it's a screenshot. I can't scroll on the article. Um, it came out two, thousand, uh, two years ago. So it's about faith and spirituality in New Zealand. And here's just some, here's some stats. Um, uh, in-depth research provides compelling snapshot of attitudes to faith and belief. 55% do not identify with main religion in New Zealand. 55% of people. One in three identify as Christian compared to 49% in 2006. 49 minus 33 is... 16% drop in, oh, what's 2020, what's 21 minus 2000, oh. 16% drop in 15 years. So this is over a percent of people, given our population of near 5 million, that's 50,000 people a year, like just uh, not identifying. Is that good? Uh, quick maths? Is that good? Yeah. So, um, like, like the, stats, the stats aren't good. 16% of people are churchgoers. 9% are active practices, whatever that means. So maybe active in terms of church definitions, at least in the Baptist, was once every month. So um, 
I'm not sure what it's like with the vineyards. I'd probably say similarly. Yeah. Every week, yeah. Every week is, um, yeah, yeah. Booming. Um, so, like, it's really interesting times. And what I've what I got to admit is, is the decline of faith and spirituality is it's largely a Western phenomenon. Um, so we see a lot of our Western world becoming more secular when a lot of the majority world, aka 90% of the world, is actually, the stats are pretty steady or is actually rising spirituality. The center of Christianity has moved from Europe and America to essentially Africa and Asia. Like, uh, there's more Anglicans in Uganda than there are in England, right? Which is... Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting. So, and I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of trends within, right? Like, there's a lot of factors that influence this. Over the past 400 years or so, there's been this great, uh, like this long, messy breakup of um, church and state that, have, that were wedded together for 1,200 years, right? Around 325 AD, I believe, Constantine adopted Christianity as the religion of Rome, essentially. And then you've got, well, this is... It's obviously more, there's more nuance than this, but then you essentially have the power at B adopting a religion of the oppressed uh, and essentially just using that language. And then you have the saints replace the gods in terms of saints who are essentially, yeah, it's really interesting. Church history is really fascinating, right? So, uh, so 325 AD, then you take it forward another 1,200 years and you get to around the 1600s where you've got a few things. The Enlightenment, you've got the Reformation, you've got the scientific method all kind of developed, right? And over the past 400 years, there's this slow separation and messy breakup between church and state. And we're, we're kind of on the back burner of that, right? Where um, we find the church, which is, has been at the center of so much of Western society, is now moving towards the, the outskirts. And um, uh, practically what this kind of looks like is uh, it might be yourself or it might be your friends or it might be family members who no longer come or who, who used to, who used to be here every week or now they just can't be bothered, right? It's probably more the indifferent population. There's the, the nuns, the rise of the nuns. It's really interesting. Um, for myself, I got fascinated with this. I was involved in youth ministry for years, right? And um, there was, I think, we're at a, a conference and someone was quoting some statistics and I'll, I'm essentially making it up, but it was the ballpark, these figures that within the, the Baptist youth ministries, and I assume it's for the wider youth ministries as well, 80 to 90% of youth who had been involved in youth ministries when they got to young adults just never turned up ever again to church, right? Which, like, I don't know. I found that to be quite a shocking statistic. And then they just brushed over that. And they were like, so what games are we running this week? And I was like, I was like I, I, if this is any other organization, like, somebody's getting fired. Like, there are gonna be, there's going to be some systemic overviews at least asking, wait, what are we doing? Like, um, there's only pizza and pizza and games only get you so far in terms of your faith with Jesus Christ. It's good within youth ministry, but the, the, I think maybe there's something missing here. Like, so I've really been interested in that question, at least within, um, well, spending so much time with youth and so interested in young adults. I'm, I just feel like there, there's something missing, you know. There's something missing or there's something lost because, like, Jesus and his message has been the heart of so much of our history over the past 2,000 years. Like, and... and we seem to be missing something. We seem to be missing something. Um, but in broader culture as well, you've got, you've got philosophers like Nietzsche, you know, even what, 80, end of the 19th century. Was he 1800s, Jonathan? You'll know this. Yeah, ish. Yeah. We're, sorry? Yeah, sometime, sometime around then, like a, a long time ago. Um, so Nietzsche, he's got the famous quote, God is dead. You know, like, which is like, for every first year philosophy student, it's like, yes, death to religion, this is the source of all ill, da 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 But 
Nietzsche later goes on, he's God is dead, and later on in the passage, so passage, it's not scripture, it's just his thoughts, he goes, um, and we have killed him, and there's not enough water to wash the blood away. Nietzsche's concern is like God is dead, but at the very least, God was a useful idea for keeping society together, because what happens when there's no unitive idea or, or belief in some sense of order, right? So he was worried, right? And I guess in that we see... Um, we see some of the effects of that now, right? Uh, move to post-modernity. We all live in our own little kingdoms, you know, of, of beliefs and thoughts, which is, like, I'm not anti-post-modernity. I think it's got great gifts as well, but there's a real difficult thing. When everyone's entitled to their own worldview, it's no wonder that it's difficult to get along, right? Because there's no common ground, so to speak. Um, so it's a long preamble. So I think, um, so we're, we're in an interesting time as people of faith in our current climate. And I think in many ways, it's time to break out the halftime oranges and have a chat. You know, like, I don't know who here was in sports. I personally got, um, wasn't called this back then, but I got MVP in, in uh, my rugby team when I was five years old. So after that, I gave up the game because when you're, you've already made the top, like you just got to keep going there. But so for those who aren't sports people, uh, a lot of the time when you need glucose after you've exerted yourself physically. So at the, at the middle point of a game, what you'd do is you'd get the team together and then some lovely parent would have provided cut-up oranges for a quick hit of glucose and citrus. Um, and then you'd chat, what's gone right, what's gone wrong, you know? In America, there'd be an inspirational speech about believing in yourself. Um, but in New Zealand, it's like, that wasn't good. Like you, we should... So, but I think... Um, there's a really interesting time, like, where it's like, okay, we need to have a chat about this, right? Because, like, there's some really interesting things going on here with the death of religion in the Western world and what that means for society and the long-term consequences. Um, it's a bit diet, it's a bit nerve-wracking, but part of me, I'm kind of excited by it. Like, one, because I'm a nihilist, but two, because I'm not a nihilist, I'm an absurdist, but... Um, <laughs> I'm interested in it because I think there's got to be something in it, right? Like, the... Um, like, the, the first step of the 12-step program, right, is powerlessness. When you come to the end of your stuff, you've got to be like, we don't know what's going on. Like, we, we've tried everything and it's not working, right? But it's only from a place of powerlessness and surrender, so to speak, that true transformation comes. So, like, in this time of just admitting something's really interesting, right, then we can be honest and then we can be, I guess, reflect on what's worked, what's not. And if we're honest, right, like, so the, the church has moved from being in the position of power to the margins, we didn't really do a good job in the position of power. Uh, one thing being, the Catholic Church, and I mean the Catholic Church because it was the only church for a while, killed more Christians than the Roman Empire ever did, right? Like, like we can break out the halftime oranges and have a chat now and not get beheaded, which is really good, right? Because we're not questioning the systems of power. We're actually just being like, what's going on here, right? So, like, for some reason, like, it didn't really do the church too, too well to be in the position of power because then Christianity became far less about looking anything like Jesus and far more about maintaining systems of power. When you're at the top, you're about defending. When you're on the margins, you can actually be honest and be truthful. One of my suspicions is that for um, us to kind of reclaim the soul of who, it, who we are to be as people of faith is that we need to, we're not meant to be the village chief, but we can be the village elder. You know, like, like at the, we're not meant to be the one commanding everyone, but we can be that wise person on the edges that people go to when they're ready for it. I think that's a really interesting space to come back to it. Um, and I love um, what Kierkegaard says about this. Um, I've mentioned it before. He's one of my favorite Danish existentialist philosophers. Um, and there's a big bunch, so he's, he's risen to the top, but it's been a fierce competition. But he says that truth always rests with the minority, 
And the minority is always stronger than the majority because the minority is generally formed by those who really have an opinion. While the strength of a majority is illusory, formed by the gangs who have no opinion and who therefore, in the next instant, when it is evident that the minority is stronger, assume its opinion. While truth again reverts to a new minority. Just in that sense, when you're going with the flow of the crowd, it's really easy, but it costs you significantly to have a divergent opinion. And what I don't mean by this is that every minority opinion is correct, because some minority opinions are absolutely insane. Like, but then some are deeply true and deeply prophetic to what the challenges that face. That's, it's like, um, no, I'm not going to go there. Not tonight. But do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, like, like yeah. No, no, not tonight. Not tonight. Not tonight. Okay, so one of the most powerful forces in like transformation within church or ecclesiological structure is small groups, right? Like small groups can be an awesome space of healing and transformation. They can also be really crazy. Right, and then just get super weird and then start new sects and cults. Sects, S-E-C-T-S, and cults. And like, it can, so, like that, so that's what I mean. Like the minority, you can have a small group that's like super transformative, but then there's a lot of crazy stuff that goes on. It's a risk. It's a risk. So, but the truth's found in the minority, right, because it costs to hold it. But also there's a lot of crazy stuff that's in it. Tonight what we're looking at is, um, tonight what, another opportunity here that we're looking at tonight is... Um, which I find is to be interesting, is we're actually going to open the Scriptures, which is always good. We're going to look in the book of Acts. So this is Acts 17. On the left is Peter, or St. Peter. It's a real fancy picture. I think it's been stylized. Um, and then on the right is Paul. Now, Peter and Paul are two of the main characters within the book of Acts. Acts comes after the Gospels. So Jesus has uh, come along. He's died. He's resurrected. He's ascended. And then uh, the Holy Spirit comes along and empowers all these people to share the message of Jesus wherever they go. Now, Peter, uh, on the left, the guy with the big bushy beard, he goes to, around to Jerusalem, and he, he's preaching to a lot of the Jewish populations, right? And as he's preaching to a lot of the Jewish populations, he's, they, they know the story. The Jewish people knew their story. Like, their entire calendar was based on all these festivals and, and the storyline. So uh, if you look at the book of Acts, Peter's preaching, it's like, you know Abraham, you know Moses, you know all these people. Well, this is who Jesus is in relation to da, 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 da. And he's linking them into the story. And he's like, this is who Jesus is, which is really interesting, right? And that's so much of how, how we preach. It's like, well, in Genesis, this happened, in Exodus, it's our approach softened as well. Interestingly, though, Paul didn't necessarily go to the Jews. Paul went on this epic road trip. He went on three, four of them, four road trips and boat trips, four general adventures, right, throughout the uh, Mediterranean Sea. This is his first and second missionary trip, and this story happens on his second one. Paul went to the ends of the, of the known world to them, essentially, to Greece, to Rome, to all these places, sharing this message and he went, sharing it to, he went sharing this message to people who didn't know who Abraham was, didn't know who Moses was, didn't know who all these people were. So how do you share the message of Jesus and the resurrection of this to people who have no context, right? This is what Paul's faced with. So we enter into this story in Acts 17 when Paul's walking through Athens. And um, I'm just going to read it out. Read it out. And just so within that, like, he's going to a people where not everyone knows the story, right? And I'd say, I'll put it like this. Maybe 50 years ago, 
like we could get by like preaching like Peter as if people knew the story. We, today we don't live in a world, in the Western world, where people know the story. They don't know the characters. So Paul is speaking to a world much like us, where we don't know the context. So within that, let's read. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-feeling, well, I was wrong in that, there were Jews there, um, Jews and God-feeling Greeks, as well, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You will bring some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas, kind of like podcasts these days. They were obsessed with Joe Rogan. Um, have you done DMT? Um, Paul then stood up. Sorry, that was a Joe Rogan reference. It's bad. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The Lord God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. And this is interesting. And Paul quotes, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. There's a few, there's a few interesting things here. Like, and I've mentioned it. Paul's speaking to an audience who doesn't know the story. And Paul just then at the very end there, in his, in his sermon, right? He, you don't hear this. Does he mention the cross? I'm not sure. Does he mention sin? I'm not sure. Does he mention going to heaven? I'm not sure. What he does do is, for in him we live and move and have our being, he references a Greek, oh, I can't remember his name, Acretius? He, he, he references a Greek philosopher, and then in the very next sentence references a Greek poet. What he does, knowing the culture and context, is he identifies some sense of truth in what he can find and uses that to communicate a message that God, this unknown God that they're searching for, is nice and close and is near. And I think this is a really interesting thing to think through. Um, a lot of the time we speak like Peter when actually we need to be sounding a lot more, a lot, a lot more like Paul, speaking into the, something that actually makes sense. Because when you take a, take a step back, like, like the Judeo-Christian narrative is weird. And I asked this question, when was the last time you slaughtered an animal? Don't answer, actually, because it's like it, it would be. But this is commonplace, right? Like all the language around Jesus and salvation and, and atonement and um, being the sacrifice or absorbing the weight of sin makes no sense today 
to to anyone on the street. You're like, you know, and I, I was thinking this at Easter camp. I was like, this is a really confusing message. Like, how is anyone? I, I, I'm not sure I understand this. Let alone these 13 year old kids who've just given their life for it, right? Like, well, do you know? It's it's really interesting. Like, and obviously the Holy Spirit's moving in some way to translate some some of the bits. But within this, right? Like, it's really interesting. Like, so like, how do you, how do you make sense of this, right? It made a lot of sense to Jesus entering into a culture and a society that had idols around. Like, everyone would sacrifice food. Um, everyone would sacrifice money. Everyone would sacrifice even people to the gods, right? Like, this was normal to them, right? So when someone absorbs the weight of sin and becomes the sacrifice for all, makes sense then. But this is the language of Peter, which doesn't make sense to us now. So it really has me asking, like, how do we need to be more like Paul? Ah, that's another thing there. We speak like Peter, but we need to sound like Paul. Like, we need to ask what, um, what's happening, like, in our culture now, right? And there's deep truth in the Scriptures, right? There's deep truth in this passage. Paul is distressed walking through Athens by, um, he's distressed because the city's full of idols, right? And we don't really talk about idols today, but they're, they're alive and well. An idol is something which we become obsessed by as a source of purpose or we a potential source of fulfillment. An idol is something that when this happens or if this doesn't happen, then my life will be ruined, right? We can make idols out of anything, right? Um, and Paul's distressed by it in the same sense that we should be distressed by idols now, right? And the difficult thing is they're just a lot more subtle. Like we're still very, we're still a very religious people. Like there's something in our DNA, there's something in our brain that makes us religious. And what I mean by that is to put our trust in something bigger than our, ourselves, to put our trust in something. The word faith, is, uh, it's, it means so much now, it's not necessarily useful. The word trust, I think, captures it so much. So if, if you're talking to anyone, like often when you use faith, it's like, I'm not religious. It's like, oh yeah, but what do you trust? What are you trusting in? Like, and it could be myself. I'm trusting in myself. It's like, it's fine, but that, that will come to a, conclu- a logical conclusion point at some point, depending on when your body starts to fail or depending when life gets really hard. People are trusting in um, consumer capitalism that maybe when I get my next pair of Vajas or something like that, I'll, I'll be really fulfilled. Or I, Nobody's really said that, but I don't think anyone's ever said that exact line in the world. That was a brand new line in the world. Do you ever think that? Have you, have you, have you ever thought... I'm the first person to ever say that, and probably will be the last one. Um, some people, are, so I, I, I remember being a young man, and I was trusting in this narrative that finally, like when I found the one, that I would be completely fulfilled and life would make sense. And it's true. Like, it actually worked. No, no, like, um, but, like, within that, like, romantic love can be an idol, right? Like, like in that sense of, like, once I find the one, life's going to be so perfect. And, like, the issue being, that puts tremendous pressure on Zoe to, to like, that my life should be fulfilled and complete because of her, which won't happen. It's just, you're a human. I'm sure I don't do the same thing for you, right? So it's just too much pressure for another human being to wear. How dare you put that on someone else, right? But within this, right, so these idols are alive. Or, um... Matt, like all these languages, it's still the same thing as back then. Like a lot of stuff's changed, but Aphrodite, the goddess of love, is still alive. Ares, the god of war, is still alive. That by revenge and violence, that will find peace, right? Mammon's still alive, the, the god of money, right? We just call it the NZ housing market, you know, and worship at the altar of it. Um, or it will cause violence when there's a revolt against the boomers who have hoarded them all themselves. No, I'm joking. We're not going to do that. We're not going to argue for that. It's just systems that don't. Yeah, maybe we should. No, we're not going to. Um, like many things have changed. We live in a very different world to, to Greece, but, but 
to Greece and to Jerusalem, but actually a lot of stuff's the same as well. The, the idols are still well alive, like, because actually at the end of the day, people are really simple. We want to, somewhere to live, we want someone to connect with relationally, and we want delicious food. It seems to be, that's kind of the core needs, right? Like, like humans are really simple. We just dress it up in fancier language, right? And I think it's a lot of fun there. Um, the unknown gods. So in the text, Paul speaks about the known gods, right? And they're still alive and well today. The unknown gods that Paul speaks about. In, in, in Acts, he says, I even found an idol uh, with a, uh, I even found a statue with the inscription to an unknown god. That the Greeks in their wisdom had been like, we still don't know everything. So like, we might hedge our bets and just have the space for something else, right? This is the unknown God, right? And this is the unknown God that I think every human being has. Because as long as we're still asking the big questions of life, who am I? What am I here for? What's this all about? This is the unknown God. As long as those questions are being asked around the world, the conversation of faith is still alive. Because um, the answer to those big questions don't come with yes or no answers. They don't come with certainty. They don't come with um, any form of like evidence-based practice or anything like this. The answer to the biggest questions of life will always be the conversations of faith because they are subjective, because they are uh, ethereal, because they're in the clouds, so to speak. I, um, when I was young, clean and dirty science, I'll talk about it in this in this paradigm, I, am, was, I get so frustrated that somehow I've ended up in like, the humanities and theology and all this kind of stuff. Like, for so long, I've been so desperate that I wish I cared about physics or maths, right? Because at least there's something, like, concrete that's, like, right or wrong. And I was so jealous, you know? Um, I was like, if only I'd been loved maths and just had something to be confident about, like, deeply confident about. But then I realized one day, it's like, humans aren't rational beings. We don't make our, we don't base our lives off, off maths equations. We base our lives off stories, you know? Like, we don't base our lives or our decisions on any, actually on much rationality whatsoever, but we actually base our lives and live our lives based on our philosophy and theology. Like, as much as I've desired to be about the clean sciences, which have clear answers, every human being is a dirty scientist. In the sense, and that's another good phrase. Every human being, every, we answer these questions with our life. These big questions, we may not ask them, theor- like, we may not talk about them, but we answer them every single day with the lives that we lead, Right? It's really interesting. Like, this shapes everything. So, and this is the unknown God, right? So, while religion or the organization may be dwindling, right, I don't think the big questions or the asking of that has declined in any way. And I think there's a huge opportunity to have a significant voice or, or, or speak into that. Um, and I just got some questions for us tonight. It's, uh, they will be rhetorical. I don't want answers. But um, they'd be good to reflect on uh, for us as we go into our, our weeks, right? Like, one of my first questions is, is uh, remembering that Paul, in the text, he, he goes to the Greeks and he uses their own philosophy. He uses their own poetry. Paul looks out into the culture and sees the truth that he already sees and pulls that out in a way that they understand. For, for us, uh, I, I wonder... Who would Paul quote today? Like, who would be the philosophers that Paul quote? Would it be 660, don't forget your roots, don't forget your family, the ones who made you? You know, that's good psychology. We're all from a, we're all from a context, you know? We're all, that's, like, that's like the genealogies of, 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 of Matthew or like all of the Old Testament. He's just like, don't forget your roots. Here's all of the lineage of Jesus, right? Like, I don't know if that would be the segue he'd use. Like, I wonder if Paul was trying to present the gospel of Jesus Christ, if it just sounded a lot like Brene Brown. You know, like, like who knows? Or, or 
Because it's truth. He looks out and he finds truth wherever it is. He sees people's desire for the unknown God, the space to wonder what's this all about. And he looks into the culture and he sees perhaps where God's moved in advance. And he just catches up, catches up to where God's already moved, right? So um, I guess, oh, what's that? Is that the last slide? Yeah, I think it is. Um, so this is an unknown road. Like this is the unknown road we're on, right? Like, and for you to be here, it's cost you. Right, like, we're, like in the like dwindling religious populations, nobody's forcing you to come to church. Like nobody's like nobody's forcing you to be here. There's probably not as much family friendship. Maybe there's some. Like, but like, like it's you're actually choosing it. You know, like, and if the truth rests in the minority, it's like how can you be about that? And uh, like a deeply true, we can be honest because what's there to lose? Everyone's left except for us. It's just us left now. Like, why don't we have some honest chats? Break out the oranges. No. Um, what was I going to say? It was probably going to be good. No. Oh, it's somewhere. It's going to mm, finish on a positive. What is it? Oh, it's disappeared. It's disappeared. Um, I guess the... <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's <laughs> oh, so this isn't a new thing either, right? Also throughout Scripture, there is a history within the history of Israel of a faithful remnant. Like whether there's times in exile, whether there's times of people just doing whatever, you know. There's all, like the heartbeat of the people of faith, the heartbeat of the, the I don't want to say the church, the heartbeat of, of whether it's the people of God has always been a faithful, a faithful 10%. Usually it seems to be, right? Like, which is interesting, there's 9%. I'm not saying every, the 9% stat of New Zealand people in churches mean that, yes, there's a faithful 9% of people in New Zealand. But what I'm saying is, like, all of this is about being committed to what's deeply true and meaningful in life. And that means we probably will never fit in the majority. But if we take Kierkegaard and what he says, he's like, the truth never really rests in the majority. It's what's convenient. It's what, it's what, is the flavor of the month. So it's like, how can we actually be faithful witnesses at the edge of society, which is where the church has always done its best, you know? It's where it's always been its most faithful. And in that, it's asking, actually. It's not, it's not this idea that we bring God to people. It's much more like Paul being like, well, God's already there. How can we just help bring a name, you know, in the language that they're already using and seeing where that is. So as we go about our weeks, I wonder... Um, just think, you know, think as you're engaging with your popular culture um, and your Netflix and your Disney Pluses, you know, what of, I guess, the messages do you already see in there? You know, what do you see? Who would Paul quote in your everyday life? You know, who would Paul kind of identify? That's what's, that's the juice. That's the good thing. And then for us as well, um, it's considering that, uh, that maybe even more so, like we like it in the nice, comfortable church environment, right? But like, there's, there's also asking, where has God been moving and we just actually need to catch up, right? Like, how I, yeah, I, I mean, what, where is the work of God being done that we can go and support? And it may not necessarily actually just be Christian, but I think when the homeless get shelter and the poor get fed, that I think God's stoked, even if it's not got a Christian label on it, right? So where are we actually just supporting the work of God, you know, in culture and society, and then bringing that voice to it. So I'm going to pray, and within those questions, um, hopefully they create an itch rather than scratch it. Strange, in the sense that you scratch, you scratch the itch. Which hopefully they and they bring some good conversation for throughout your week. But I'll, I'll pray for us as a people, um, and within this, like, 
I have a deep sense of peace within this as well, because like, what's there to lose? You know, like if, if God has got a truth, then if we are bold and courageous enough to try and encounter that truth, it will make itself known, you know. And if we have trust that God will move in that, that's cool. That's all we can do. So let's pray. Creator God, I give thanks that you're far more present in this world than we think. I give thanks that you move far more than we notice. Um, so more than anything else, I just pray within us, I guess, a a peace within ourselves to trust deeply in you. And give us the ears to hear your voice. Give us the eyes to see where you are already in the worlds that that is and the people we encounter along the way. And most of all, I just pray for, I guess, that our hearts would beat in rhythm in your heart. And as we, I guess, tune into the song that you've always been singing, that, that you'd help us sing along in our, in our own lives where they are. As we go on this unknown road in, in faith and spirituality in the 21st century, I guess, can you help us notice where you've just gone ahead of us and, and help us catch up a little bit? We give thanks for this place. Um, we give thanks for Sticky Date Put. And we give thanks that we can, I guess, hang out together on a Sunday night and, and be um, reminded of you in a way that just changes us one degree at a time. In your beautiful and mighty name, amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. And if you're in the Forest Hill or the Bays area of Auckland's North Shore, we would so love to have you at our next service this Sunday. You can get details on service times and more info on our kids and student environments by visiting svc.org.nz. That's svc.org.nz. Hope you have a great day and we'll see you next time here on the podcast.